We were in Philemon, small book in the New Testament. Comes before Hebrews, after Colossians. And we're in the middle of the book today. So we'll be reading verses 8 through 16. Say Philemon chapter 1, but it's only one chapter. So, verses 8 through 16, please listen carefully as this is God's Word. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this small, deeply personal book that speaks about reconciliation. Lord, we've come to realize we're in sinners in need of reconciliation, and we open your word to find in it one who reconciles us to God. So by your spirit, make us hearers and doers of the word this morning. As always, for this we need your grace. And just as with the younger children, give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. There are a lot of chores, uh, which I have to admit that I'm not a very big fan of. I don't mind doing the dishes, not a fan of doing the laundry. I tend to prefer the outside chores, like working around the yard. And once in a while you find a chore that's actually kind of fun. And one of the jobs I happen to enjoy is splitting wood. Now, if you have a lot of wood, there's several ways to do this. Uh, first, you can split wood with an axe, uh, but that will wear you out fairly soon. Second, if you really have a lot of wood, you can rent one of those log-splitting machines. Um, but for most of us, log-splitting involves a small metal wedge and a sledgehammer. If you're frustrated, this is good therapy. <laughs> Initially, you start with an axe to make a small split, and you insert the wedge, and then you start pounding the wedge into the wood with the sledgehammer. And when the log finally splits in half, some sort of inner lumberjack gets the best of you, and so you do it again. <laughs> and granted, at some point, your arms will get sore and the fun will wear off. But initially, it feels great just 
smashing that wedge into the wood. And what happens is with each piece of wood, that small metal uh, wedge works its way slowly uh, but surely through the wood and eventually splits it into a near identical halves which crash to the ground. And there we have a picture of the effect of sin within personal relationships. Just like that little wedge that drives apart two halves of a log, sin can drive apart a friendship, a marriage, or family members as it works its way slowly but surely through the relationship. Is there hope? Sure. But when your relationship is split and those two halves have tumbled to the ground, you know, is there hope it can be brought back together? Splitting logs uses a small wedge. Some of you are dealing with big offenses, big sins, and perhaps you'd rather let the relationship just go, and you've given up hope. Paul's letter to Philemon provides hope. It's a true story about forgiveness and reconciliation between Onesimus, a slave, and Philemon, his master. And Onesimus has sinned against Philemon. And, and Paul is writing, as it says in verse 10, to appeal to Philemon for Onesimus. So let's set the scene of what's going on. What has happened here? And I want you to travel back in time with me. We're heading back to the city of Colossae in the first century, and we're going to visit Philemon, one of the leaders of the Colossian church. We don't know exactly what he did, but he had servants, so perhaps he was a merchant. Imagine yourself in his home on a day very much like today. The sun is coming up and burning away the clouds, and the birds are singing, and the brisk smell of fall is in the air. It's one of those days you feel especially alive. God has truly blessed me by giving me Aphia, Philemon thought. What more could a man ask than for a Christian wife? God has given me a house with plenty of room for guests. He has given me the means to make it possible for my brothers and sisters in Christ to meet here often. And now look at the day that's dawning. It doesn't get any better than this. He thought about some of his Christian friends. His heart lingered over the name of a man whom he admired most, the Apostle Paul. And the thought of Paul shackled to some Roman guard and how he must be starting his day made him shudder. But what an encouragement that Paul was to him. I owe Jesus my soul and I owe my faith in Jesus to Epaphras, Philemon thought. But if Paul hadn't led Epaphras to Jesus, I wouldn't know Jesus today. I, my wife, my son, all the Christians in Colossae, we all owe our spiritual lives to Paul, a man we've never even met, a man who has endured unspeakable things for us, such love and such strength and such an example. And at this thought, his heart melted into prayer. Lord, grow in me the sort of faith I see in Paul and Epaphras. Bring whatever you will into my life to challenge me to grow such a heart of love and grace. Help me to love others not for what they've done for me or what they can do for me, but simply because you love them. Teach me how to love people as you have loved us. 
Amen. Philemon paused, thinking again of Epaphras. You remember the words of a prayer that Epaphras had taught him as they came up out of the Lycus River when Epaphras had baptized him. And standing there on the bank soaking wet, Epaphras said, Paul taught me this and it served me well. It will serve you well too. Pray this prayer every morning as you rise up. Soak yourself in it every morning. Then go out and live it. And he prayed, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And just then a thought intruded on Philemon's meditation. Where is his servant, Onesimus? He should already be up and about doing his chores. Clearly, no one is stirring, and unfortunately this isn't anything new, particularly lately. Where's that sorry servant this time? He certainly doesn't live up to his name. He's hardly useful. He's useless. And with that, he jumped out of bed and began calling for Onesimus. But Onesimus is nowhere to be found. And Philemon had just given up his search for Onesimus when he heard his wife, Aphia, cry out, several valuable items are missing. It didn't take long for Philemon to put two and two together and conclude that his useless servant had ripped him off and fled. Philemon's mind raced. How could he do this? We've given him a home, honorable work, decent clothes. This is how he repays us, by stealing from us and leaving like a thief in the night. I suppose I should have expected such from an unbeliever. He's heard the word many times right here in this house, and he's only grown further from God all the time. I'd like to see him one more time. Many, 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 many months later, possibly a year, the church is still meeting in Philemon and Apphia's home, and now their son Archippus is preaching too, and times are good. The things Onesimus had stolen hadn't hurt them too much financially, but some of them were given to Apphia by her late grandmother, and so they had sentimental value. And to think that they had been stolen and probably hocked for a handful of denarii really bothered Philemon. And truth be told, the mere mention of Onesimus' name just grated on his nerves. Again, it had been a particularly beautiful day, one of those days when you feel particularly alive. Business had been good at the shop, but now the day was done. It's beginning to get dark. And Philemon and the rest of his household had just finished the evening meal and were about to turn in. Philemon started towards the door to checked the latch opening when he was startled by a knock at the door. And picking up a lamp, he opened the door and held up the lamp to see Onesimus and another man whom he had never seen. And the man with Onesimus spoke up and said, Peace to you, brother. My name is Tychicus, a friend of your friends, Epaphras and Timothy. And my friend Onesimus, you know. We're coming from Rome. Onesimus has something for you, may we come in. Philemon nearly dropped his lamp. He was just about to blurt out something when Onesimus slowly handed Philemon a small scroll. Philemon glared at Onesimus, but Onesimus looked only at the ground. No one said a word. Could have cut the air with a knife. Philemon jerked the scroll from Onesimus' hand, unrolled it, and began to read, and he gasped at the opening word. I, Paul. 
what on earth is Onesimus doing here, much less with a letter from, of all people, Paul? Is this some sort of trick? Philemon continued to read the scroll, written in that very distinctive handwriting he had seen before. He knew how difficult it was for Paul to write. Since Paul couldn't see all that well, he usually dictated his letters. But this was his handwriting. The huge scrawled printing was unmistakable. That he would make such an effort to write this note himself humbled Philemon just a bit. He read on, beginning silently, but as he read further, he began to read aloud and loud and louder and louder. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Philemon's hands began to tremble, and his voice began to trail off when he reached the words, My child Onesimus. Philemon's head shot up, and the eyes of Onesimus and Philemon met for the first time in nearly a year. You mean, you are a Christian now? Onesimus faintly nodded, still saying nothing. But Philemon could see a barely perceptible tear welling up in the corner of one eye. Philemon stared at him for a moment, stunned, and he began to read once more. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Philemon could hardly grasp all that he'd read so far, but it was the next words which sort of tightened their grip on his soul. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Philemon's mind raised. God's hand may have been involved in this from the very beginning. My friend Paul considers this sorry thief his very heart. What Onesimus put me through may have been necessary if he was to come to know the Lord. My wife's pain had a purpose. And now this man, this thief, is my brother. What am I supposed to do now? And right there, the story abruptly stops. We don't know what happened. We don't know the rest of the story. Yes, we know we'd, uh, how we'd like the story to end, but we don't know how it did end. Now, why on earth would God's Spirit leave such a story unfinished? Why would God leave us hanging? What's the point? Well, perhaps the point is very personal. Could it be this story is left uh, dangling so that we could see ourselves in the story? Maybe we're left without an ending, so we'd be challenged to recall that we're all writing our own ending every day with the way that we live in relationship with each other. Let me speak plainly. Today, your willingness and my willingness to forgive others is crucial. Clearly, whether we can forgive others the way the Lord has forgiven us reveals whether we truly are the Lord's people or not. Our deliberate forgiveness of those who have wronged us 
is determining, at least in part, whether or not we really believe in the amazing forgiveness of Jesus Christ. For our willingness to forgive, particularly those uh, uh, when we simply cannot forget what they've done. Our willingness to forgive either helps or hinders others from continuing in their walk with the Lord. When we refuse to forgive, we're not just hurting ourselves. We're potentially stunting, slowing, stopping the growth of others. Friends, today you hold your soul, perhaps the souls of others, in your hand. And every time you hold your Bible, you hold up the words of the scroll that Philemon held in his hand centuries ago. Now Paul is writing from a prison in Rome. Philemon being listed first as the primary recipient of the letter. He's a friend of Paul's and later we'll see that Paul had actually led Philemon to Jesus. Most likely Aphia is Philemon's wife and Archippus is probably his son and one of the leaders of the church. But this letter is also written to the church that meets in his home. So it's both a private and a public letter. This letter would have been read to the entire church. Today perhaps Paul would have sent an email to Philemon and cc'd everybody else. And as we work through this letter, Paul reveals there are two attitudes necessary for forgiveness and reconciliation to take place. Philemon is characterized by one of these attitudes, and Onesimus is characterized by the other. But both sides have to acknowledge the necessity of each. And the first attitude that's necessary for real forgiveness to take place is embodied by Philemon the one who's been offended. You can only forgive if you're willing to sacrifice, and you can only sacrifice if you don't focus on yourself. And so in Philemon, we see that forgiveness needs selfless love. Selfless love. The opening verses of this letter, which Reverend Dorst went over with us last week, Paul mentioned some aspect of Philemon's selfless love for the church. First one was back in verse 2. He hosts the church in his house. He demonstrates his love through hospitality and fellowship and worship with the saints. And then back in verse 5, he says he thanks God because he's heard of Philemon's uh, love. Philemon has earned a reputation. He is the linchpin of love in this church. And then back in verse 7, Paul says he himself has benefited from Philemon's love. He says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. And then most importantly, the reason Paul's derived this joy is because of the refreshing, encouraging effect that Philemon has had on those he's come in contact with. It says, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now imagine relaxing in an easy chair at the home of the most encouraging Christian you know. And they are all ears for your problems. That's Philemon. All these characteristics of Philemon's selfless love surround the prayer that Paul prays in verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now that verse requires some explanation because it's the key for Paul's intent to reconcile Philemon and Onesimus. And Paul says, I pray that 
the sharing of your faith may become effective. Now, to us, that sounds like evangelism. We use that phrase, sharing your faith, to refer to telling unbelievers about Jesus. But that's not what it means here. Paul here is talking about Philemon's relationship with the other believers, with the people in his church that meet in his house. It would be weird for him to talk about edification, switch gears to evangelism, and then immediately go back to edification. Uh, again, Paul wants the Christian fellowship that Philemon is a part of to become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that the believers have in Christ. By full knowledge, he's talking not just about head knowledge, but also experiential knowledge, the knowledge that comes from doing. Paul prays that Philemon would have, you might say, book smarts and street smarts when it comes to every good thing that believers share for the sake of Christ. And why does Paul pray that? Didn't he just list all the ways that Philemon has been effective in loving the saints? Seems like this is an unnecessary prayer. Until you recall the situation. Philemon has been sinned against by Onesimus. And when you have been sinned against, it's easy to switch into me first mode. It's easy to take your eyes off others, focus on yourself and your pain. But you can't forgive the one who sinned against you if you're focused on yourself. Because forgiveness requires sacrifice. Forgiveness requires you to lay down self-love and love the one who has wronged you instead. No one ever truly forgives someone when they're in me first mode. It's virtually impossible. So Paul prays that Philemon would keep this attitude of selfless love. And as we proceed in the next section of the letter, which are really our verses for today, Philemon's in for a pretty big surprise. His jaw is about to hit the floor. As for all these saints that Philemon is so good at loving, Onesimus is now in that group. Onesimus, that lazy slave, he's a Christian. Yes, Onesimus has changed. And it's precisely the attitude of change that's the second attitude that's needed for a reconciled relationship. Not only is the one who's been sinned against have to forego living in that me first mode, keep this attitude of selfless love, but the one who has done the sinning, who has done the offending, who has committed the wrongs, must change. And that's because Paul's making it clear that forgiveness needs a changed life. Forgiveness needs a changed life. The one who sinned must change. He or she must really change. There's three ways that we see that Onesimus is a changed man. The obvious and most important change is in verse 10. And it's a spiritual change change. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Onesimus has experienced the new birth. He's come to Christ. He's had a conversion by grace through faith in the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Second change is found in verse 11. It's an ethical change. It says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me, to you and to me. The name Onesimus literally means useful. And so there's a play on words here. Apparently Onesimus has been mocked 
in the past, possibly even by Philemon, as useless. You can hear it, you know, you're really not useful. The truth is, you're useless. It seems as if Onesimus wasn't that hard of a worker. And slaves from his region are notorious for their laziness. But now, Christian, Onesimus has a transformed work ethic. And apparently under the discipleship of the Apostle Paul, he has learned, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So there's a spiritual change, an ethical change, and third, verse 13, is a ministry change. Paul specifies exactly how Onesimus has become useful to him. He said, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Onesimus has been enlisted by Paul as an assistant in his gospel work. Now I have the luxury of having a pastoral staff. It's an incredible help. Important details that I don't even know about magically fall into place. And I can devote myself to the Word, to preaching, to teaching, to students, not to you. More and more, I have to ask Dave and Tom and Jeff what's going on because they're handling it, they're planning it, they're taking care of it. And I just want to say publicly how grateful I am that they're ministering here at Potomac Hills. It makes a huge difference. The amount of ministry that's going on uh, has gone up exponentially. Not just for me, but for you and for your family. And Paul enjoyed this kind of help from Onesimus. So because of the spiritual change, there's a ministry change. Now, only genuine heart change can lead you to the kind of repentance required for a reconciled relationship. Onesimus doesn't uh, merely undergo a behavioral change. He undergoes a heart change. Some of you may be trying to control your temper, a behavior, instead of rooting out your anger, which is a heart issue. Some of you are fighting pornography, a behavior, with computer software, instead of trying to root the lust out of your heart. And you think if you can change your behavior, the problems in your relationship will go away and everything will be fine. No, you need a heart change. By the power of the Spirit, you need to turn away from sin and in those areas, turn to Christ. In the midst of these changes, a spiritual change, an ethical change, a ministry change, this really tight bond was formed between Paul and Onesimus. We read in verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. It was hard for Paul to send Onesimus back. They had grown close. But Onesimus had to go back in order to be reconciled with Philemon. And Paul hopes that Philemon will be reconciled to Onesimus. His desire is that forgiveness will come about because of the selfless love of Philemon and the changed life of Onesimus. Picking up at verse 14, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why 
He was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In these verses, Paul tells Philemon to respond to the changes that have occurred in Onesimus. He doesn't want Philemon to be suspicious. And this is the hardest thing to do when we've been wronged by someone and they ask to be forgiven. We wonder if they've really changed. And Paul is asking Philemon to recognize Onesimus as a changed man. These verses, however, raise several uh, important questions about the situation between Philemon and Onesimus. There's things in this letter that Paul uh, knows about that he doesn't exactly tell us. So how was Onesimus parted from Philemon? As it says in verse 15. And what does Paul mean in verse 16 when he says more than a slave? So let's start with verse 15. How were they parted? There's two views uh, that have some possibility. One, that Onesimus is a runaway slave who became guilt-ridden as a fugitive. There are some allusions in this letter uh, to him having been a thief. But it's not specifically spelled out. And knowing that Paul had influenced his master so much, Onesimus tracks him down in Rome uh, for help. And in this case, his sin would have been running away. Possibly stealing. Or two, he didn't run away, but there was some altercation between him and Philemon. And so uh, Onesimus left Philemon with his permission to seek out Paul essentially for uh, mediation to work out their differences. And we don't know for sure. We're not specifically told. And it's not Paul's main concern. What he is concerned here is God's purpose behind it. When he says perhaps this is why he was parted from you, he's using what we call a divine passive. The implied actor behind these passive verbs is God. And Paul wants to point Philemon past the sin to see how God is working it out for good. You can maybe thinking, you know, the forgiveness issue I'm dealing with is just way more serious than whatever Onesimus and Philemon experienced. There's no way that it can work out for good. And I don't know your exact situation. I probably know more about it than you expect. But I don't know everything about anyone's exact situation. But I do know that God was able to work out the worst thing that ever happened in the world to bring out the best good the world has ever experienced. The worst thing that ever happened was that Jesus was crucified. Perfect God, innocent man, murdered. But we call it Good Friday for a reason. And it worked out for our good because it brought salvation to the world. It worked out for Jesus' good who was raised from the dead uh, on the third day and exalted to the right hand of God the Father at the throne of the universe. And I don't know how God will work out your situation for good, but I know that He can. What about the second question? What does it mean that Philemon is to receive Onesimus back as more than a slave? 
Some people think that uh, this means Philemon is supposed to free Onesimus. Maybe, maybe not. Doesn't specifically say. And that might not necessarily be in Onesimus' best interest. The economy back then was much harsher than ours. As hard as that may be to believe. And for Onesimus to be put out on his own could have made his life more difficult by far. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not at all like the slave trade uh, of our own history. It wasn't based on race. It was more based on economics. Slaves often had great relationships with their masters and were given enormous responsibility over their households. So we should not view it as a necessary good that Philemon frees Onesimus. But there seems to be an indication that Paul is teaching Philemon that a change in their spiritual relationship should lead to a change in their social relationship. And the social change is hinted at the end of verse 16 when he says, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Seems that Paul's telling Philemon that since there's been a spiritual change in their relationship, they're both in the Lord now, there needs to be a change in the flesh, in their human relationship. So setting Onesimus free may be the goodness that Philemon's supposed to show him, verse 14, not by compulsion, but by his own free will. And also what he'll refer to later in verse 21 when he asks him to do even more than he asks. Reconciliation and forgiveness take two attitudes. On one side, there's a person who's been wronged, offended, sinned against. This person needs an attitude of selfless love. On the other side, there's a person who committed the sin. And that person must really change. Now this is not to say that you only have to forgive if the other person changes. Christians are always called upon to forgive those who have wronged them. But there is a definite distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. For the relationship to be truly reconciled It will take forgiveness on one side and repentance and change on the other. You can forgive someone and not be reconciled to them. Now, when I scheduled this short three-week series on Philemon, I told the session that the application would focus on stewardship. And usually by stewardship, we mean stewardship of resources, the classic time, talent, and treasure. You need to invest your time in building God's church. You need to invest your talent in building God's church. And you know what's coming. You need to invest your treasure, your money, in building God's church. So what does all that have to do with forgiveness and reconciliation? Simply put, the church is people. The kingdom of God is filled with the people of God. What you're investing in is people. And in particular, you're investing in helping people, 2 Peter 3.18, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be the first one to admit that it can be hard to invest in people. People are strange. It can be weird. They do dumb stuff. 
They say things they shouldn't. Not you, but everybody around you. And often they pretend to have it all together when they don't and act like something they're not. A few weeks ago, I got to hang out with some of the guys. Not something I get to do a lot, but I really appreciate it. We were talking about some of our favorite movies and TV shows. We were talking about, you know, some of the, the classic movies. Gone with the Wind, Casablanca. And there were some new movies and uh, shows. And no conversation on the movies with it would be complete without a mention of the best movie ever made, which, as everyone knows, is The Godfather. But someone mentioned the USA Network, which airs such shows as Monk, Psych, White Collar, Suits, Burn Notice, Royal Pains, Covert Affairs, and Necessary Roughness. And since July of 2005, the slogan of this network has been, Characters Welcome. And that's what makes all these movies and shows so good. They have great characters. Monk is about a guy who's OCD. Psych is about a psychic who's not. White Collar is about an FBI agent who's not. Suits is about a lawyer who's not. Burn Notice is about a spy who's not. And in Covert Affairs, all the surveillance is led by a blind guy. Sounds a lot like the church. Believe it or not, it sounds a lot like this church. And that's because we have great characters. Have you looked at the session? Don't laugh. You elected them. It's okay. You can go ahead and laugh. They laugh at you. Of course, then they pray for you. But we have a lot of characters in the church. We have a lot of characters in this church. And that's evidence of the gospel at work. And that's why investing in people is so important. And I think that's why we want everyone to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is taking the place of an intercessor. Someone who pleads before the throne of God on your behalf. My daughter listens to these on the podcast. She says, I can always hear the spray. Paul was not obligated to do that. And yet he says, because of love's sake, his love for Onesimus, his child in the faith, and his love for Philemon, a fellow servant of Jesus Christ, he has put himself in the place of an intercessor, pleading with Philemon for Onesimus. In light of that, we need to remember that Jesus Christ takes the place of an intercessor before God so that as sinners are brought to him, he pleads his work for us. He's not asking God to overlook sin or unrighteousness or iniquity. He's not asking God to balance the scales or to balance accounts or somehow add to the credit side that which wasn't there in order that we can be received on the basis of our good works. Not at all. Instead, Jesus Christ is basing His intercession upon His own work on the sinner's behalf. 
Hebrews 7.25 teaches us, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Paul is pleading before Philemon for the life of Onesimus, and Jesus is pleading before the Father for the life of sinners. Sinners who've had a real spiritual change take place in their lives. Sinners who've made real ethical changes in their actions. Sinners who've invested in the lives of other sinners so that the ministry might be changed. And so when Jesus intercedes on behalf of these sinners before the Father, he pleads his finished work on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus Christ takes his position before the throne of God to intercede for these sinners, it isn't necessary for the Son of God to say much. All he has to do is present his wounded hands and his side by opening his arms and saying, characters, welcome. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognize our own inability to do what's right, our ability to do what's wrong, that we're in such desperate need of forgiveness and reconciliation. And we need the selfless love that's willing to forgive others just as you have forgiven us. And we need to demonstrate the fruit of repentance through changed lives that look to you instead of to ourselves. Thank you for forgiveness that heals our hearts, that changes our lives, that heals our relationships. Thank you for reconciliation with God the Father who enables us to reconcile with each other. And thank you for the prayers of your Son Jesus who welcomes characters like us and who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.